Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Beloved, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, or in a pew Bible, to Revelation 3, and we will be reading in Revelation 3, starting at verse 7 through verse 13. Let's hear God's living and powerful word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, pray with me. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. And how we thank you for this message to Philadelphia. For we know that's not only for them, but it's for us as well. So, Father, we pray that as we look to your word and at this message to this church, that you would apply these truths to our own lives and to our own church in such a way that you would be glorified and honored and that we would be built up in our faith. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we read this message to the church at Philadelphia, one of the first things that hits us is what a striking contrast there is between the Lord's message to this church from his message to the previous church, the church at Sardis which Dr. Light preached on last Sunday. The Lord's evaluation of these two churches are polar opposites. They couldn't be any more different than night is today. 
As Dr. Light taught us last week, Sardis received a stern warning and condemnation from the Lord because it was a dead church. It was much like those mechanical automaton figures you see on an amusement ride. The church had the appearance of being alive. There was lots of activity, a sort of formalism on the outside of just going through the motions. But inside, inside there was no real life. The church at Sardis was basically apostate. All, almost all had abandoned the faith and the church had made no impact on the surrounding pagan culture. And why is that? Because they had become just like it. They were like a cicada shell that you would find in your garden. An empty shell of what they formerly were with no real genuine spiritual life. And then the following message to the church at Laodicea is similar. The Lord also sends out a warning flare to them, and there is nothing, nothing praiseworthy about them. So this message to the church of Philadelphia is placed smack dab between these two churches who receive only warnings and condemnation without even a whisper a hint of commendation. But oh, oh, how different then is the message to the Philadelphians. Like the Smyrna church, the church at Philadelphia receives no warnings at all. There is no condemnation, only condemnation, only commendation. Why? Because they were vibrant. They were full of genuine spiritual life. They were a healthy church. As John MacArthur points out, they weren't a perfect church, for there is no perfect church this side of glory. But they were a faithful church. And this is astounding considering all the powerful forces, outside forces, that were aligned against them that could have easily undermined their unity and their vitality. And to understand what they were up against, it's helpful to know something of the history of the Philadelphian church. The ancient city of Philadelphia was not really all that ancient. It was founded in 189 B.C. by King Eumenes, king of Pergamum, who named it in honor of his loyal brother, Attalus. Attalus was so devoted to his brother that he received the nickname Philadelphus, which means brother lover. And so the city became to be called the city of brotherly love. And in terms of geography, as they say in real estate, where it was established was all about location, location, location. Philadelphia was strategically placed. It was a strategically placed city. It was planted at the border of three neighboring provinces, Maesia, Lydia, and Phrygia. It was set on an important trade route, That was the gateway between Europe and Asia. And this city, 
this city had a purpose. It was a missionary city. And that mission was to spread the Greek language and culture to the east, into Asia. And in some ways, it was hugely successful. Given that by the year 19 AD, the neighboring province of Lydia had completely given up their native tongue and adopted Greek as a predominant language. And also, Philadelphia had earned the name the Little Athens. So all of that helps us understand the pressures that this church in Philadelphia was up against. They were a church planted in a city purposely, purposely steeped in pagan thought and culture, and yet remarkably, they remained faithful to the Lord and faithful to his word. So much so that he gave them no condemnation. And if living in a culture neck deep in paganism wasn't difficult enough, they also had the added pressure of persecution. As we read in verse 9, how unbelieving Jews were attacking them because these Jews rejected the truth that Jesus was their promised Messiah. And yet with all these external pressures weighing down on them, these believers stood strong on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ as their Savior, their Messiah, so they receive his commendation for their commitment to him. And it also underlines the contrast between the Philadelphians and those in Sardis and Laodicea who receive only condemnation for their lack of fervent faith. And that contrast is also highlighted by the way that Jesus describes himself to the Philadelphian church, which is a stark contrast from the others. As we've seen in our study of these seven churches, The Lord, in his message to the churches, addresses himself in imagery that fits the need of the individual church to whom he's speaking. Now, it's been pointed out by various commentators that with the other six churches, the Lord uses the imagery of Revelation 1, images which John received in a vision from the Lord, a vision of the Lord. And those images in verses 12 through 16 convey immense awe. As John sees the Lord arrayed in all the magnificent magnitude of his majesty. And this vision of the Lord in Revelation 1 has a flavor of judgment about it. As the Lord seems poised to loose the faithful lightning of his terrible swift swift sword, and his bronze feet seem ready to trample out the grapes of wrath destined for destruction, and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And so the Lord addresses the other six churches with elements of the imagery of his sovereign might and of his power to execute justice and judgment. And yet for the church of Philadelphia, 
There is no mention of any of this imagery from Revelation 1 with its undertones of the Lord's judgment. Instead, notice how the Lord describes himself in verse 7. He describes himself as the Holy One and the True One. And these two attributes of the Lord, that he is holy and that he is true, would be an immense encouragement to the church given the context of where they lived. How so? Well, by describing himself as the Holy One, what is he doing? He's basically saying, I am God, for only the Holy One can be God. As we see throughout Scripture, like in Isaiah 6-3, where God is described as holy, holy, holy. And Jesus, in describing himself as the holy God, is reminding them that he is the only true God in a culture where there are more gods than Baskin-Robbins has flavors of ice cream. And in an environment where these believers would be tempted to bow the knee to these other gods to go along, just to get along. And what's more, Jesus as the holy God, his nature is pure and undefiled. He cannot lie. So all of his promises of his presence and his power are true. And he is trustworthy so that they have a rock-solid assurance that he will be with them as they face persecution. And Jesus, being the holy God, the only true God, he is powerful and he is in control of their destiny so that they have nothing, nothing to fear. Despite the attacks against them, the Lord will prevail against their enemies and they will be vindicated in the end, as the Lord makes clear in verse 9. And likewise... How encouraging it must have been for them to be reminded that Jesus is the true one, the true one. The word true here conveys the idea of what is real, what is authentic, what is genuine, as opposed to what is fake. He is reminding them that he is the true Messiah, as opposed to the false Jews who deny him. And just as his holiness is a mark of his trustworthiness, so is he trustworthy because he is true and not false. You can trust someone who does not lie. And what he teaches is true, as opposed to the false delusion of the unbelievers around them that they are in with all of their pagan practices and idolatry, So he is saying, I am true, and I am what is really real and reliable as you live in a culture immersed in lies and competing worldviews. And beloved, what a powerful combination it is to know that Jesus, our Savior, is holy 
and true. How important it is during these difficult days to be reminded that Jesus is holy and true, that he's trustworthy and that he's real. When we doubt and we fall into the fear of people and we feel the pressures to conform to the narratives of this world, when we feel the temptation to take our foot off the solid foundation of Christ, who is true, to get along, to go along, how powerful is it to know that Jesus is the holy and true God in a world that denies that there is any absolute truth. He who is true helps us not to go along with the flow, which says that there is no objective standard for what is real or valid outside of ourselves, that there is no hell below us, above us, only sky. So this is pretty radical in our day. It's radical to state that there is objective truth found in the person of Christ. And without that objective standard guiding us, is it any wonder then that people have trouble answering today the question, what is a woman? Because today, truth is what you make it or what you feel. And in that mindset, we hear the mocking, sneering voice of Pilate who said, what is truth? When he was in the very presence of truth himself. So beloved, beloved, are we not blessed to know Christ? To have this relationship with him who is holy and true, trustworthy and real? For we not only have a relationship with our creator and savior in him and in his word, we are also blessed to receive a biblical framework to interpret life with wisdom. To know what is really, really, truly real so as not to fall into a delusion in a world that has fallen off the rails into irrationality. Well, the Lord wanted to encourage the Philadelphians by reminding them that he is holy and that he's true. He then continues to encourage them by saying in verse 7 that he holds the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now what is going on here? What is Jesus saying in this verse? Well, once again, he's highlighting that he is the promised Messiah because he's quoting from the messianic prophecy of Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two which says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now, the immediate historical context of the prophecy in Isaiah 22 describes how the key to David's palace and his treasury will be given to a new steward, Eliakim, who will have the authority and the power to open the door to the king's presence. 
and to his storehouse of riches. But this passage in Isaiah 22 ultimately points to Christ as the promised Messiah. David's descendant in his hand will be placed the keys to the kingdom. And as David's son and promised Messiah, he would be our mediator. That he would come and that he would give his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that he would be raised again from the dead. And that as the risen Messiah, he would be given the keys to the kingdom to open wide the door for both Jew and Gentile to enter into the presence, the very presence of the King And that he will unlock the storehouse of God's eternal treasures to give to his people. So the key of David is a symbol that the Lord Jesus has been given all power and all authority to admit those into his kingdom. And being the keeper of the key. He is the only way to be in the presence of a just and holy God. There is no other doorway to heaven and to eternal life. And Jesus encourages them and reminds them that he has opened wide the door of salvation to them and that they can enter into his presence and that he has opened up for them the storehouse of riches, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, according to Ephesians 1.3. And beloved, that door remains open today. And you may be coming here this evening not knowing Christ, and not having heard what Christ has done for you, that he has opened up the door to heaven by his death, which he paid for all of our sins. And by his death and resurrection, he has turned the key that unlocks the door to the very presence of a holy, just God. And when we put our faith in Christ, trusting that he has cleansed us from all of our sin, We can go through that door into the very throne room of a holy God without any fear of condemnation because of what Christ has done for us all out of his grace and love. Well, this is what the believers believed in Philadelphia, what they held to And because they had remained faithful to the Lord, he commends them and says to them in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. These faithful followers of Christ have received his grace, and now what are they to do? Well, Christ reminds them that there is a missionary opportunity before them. I have set before you an open door. And what will you do with it? So we see that this city of Philadelphia, established as a missionary city, now has a new mission. 
The believers there are to spread not Greek culture, but the gospel to those around them because Jesus has opened wide the door there for them. The door that he opened for them is open to others. And they, when will they make the most of this opportunity to be his witnesses while the door of opportunity is still open? And he recognizes what a challenge this is for them, where he says in verse 8, you have little power, meaning that they are a small church. They are insignificant in number and power compared to the outside forces that they were up against. And yet, despite their seemingly insignificance, they were strong in faith, and the Lord commends them for their faithfulness to his word and their steadfastness to him in the face of persecution. So while they may have seemed powerlessless, they were actually powerful for they had all the riches of all the spiritual resources at their disposal because Christ had opened up the door to heaven. And we see this throughout Scripture, how the Lord uses the insignificant, the least, the lowly, to demonstrate his power through them. Paul illuminates this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 26 through 31. That the Lord chooses the lowly to demonstrate his power by working through them. And in doing so, he turns the world's false expectations and assumptions on their head. Paul sums it up well in verse 28. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And Paul experienced this himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, he writes how he asked the Lord to remove this thorn of flesh which hindered him physically. And what did the Lord say? He said, no. No, for my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. So here we have this tiny, insignificant church, this small band of brethren who were maligned and persecuted by unbelieving Jews who were false because they, could, they did not acknowledge the true Messiah. And these beleaguered believers were shut out. They were canceled and barred from the synagogue. And yet, yet despite the pressure they were under to capitulate, they were able to withstand the persecution and to stand firm in their faith because of Christ's power within them. And what they were going through was to be expected because this is how the unbelieving Jews treated Jesus himself. We see this in John 8, how the unbelieving Jews wanted to murder him. And he told them in John 8 that their father was not Abraham, but the devil, because of their unbelief and their murderous intent. And what does Jesus do here? He echoes the same thing. 
that these unbelieving Jews are not true Jews at all because of their unbelief. They are, in fact, a synagogue of Satan who were persecuting his disciples just as the other false Jews had persecuted Jesus. And so the Lord gives them this encouragement that just as he was persecuted and prevailed in the end against his enemies, so will they. In verse 9, he says to them, Behold, I make those who persecute you come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. John MacArthur suggests that these verses convey two possible outcomes. That some of their persecutors will come to faith in Christ because of the Gentile believers' faithful witness to them in the midst of persecution. And so they will gladly, gladly confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and bow their knee to him. But there will be some Jews who will remain in their unbelief. And at the last judgment, they will have to acknowledge what they denied in this life. That Christ is the Messiah and that he loves those Gentile believers who are the true Israel because they believed what these false Jews denied. So in this verse, which promises that Jesus' persecuted believers will be vindicated, we hear the echo of Isaiah 45.23, that everyone, everyone, believer and unbeliever, will confess that Jesus is Lord at the final judgment. The believers will do so joyfully. The unbelievers will do so with trembling. Well, then in verse 10, Jesus also gives them this promise. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Well, what is he saying here? Simply, he is saying that they will be spared the great tribulation that is yet to come to the whole world. And because of their faith, they will not experience the Lord's wrath and judgment, which those who deny Christ will experience, those who dwell on earth, which is a way of describing all those who do not believe in Christ. And what is more, they will receive other rewards as faithful followers. Verse 10 says that he will, that they will be like pillars in the Lord's temple and that they will never go from it. Now, what does this mean? Pillars in a temple. Pillars in a temple conveyed the idea of permanence, of rock-solid stability and security. And it's interesting imagery that the Lord is using here because the city of Philadelphia experienced a devastating earthquake in 17 AD. An earthquake that destroyed the city and many people ended up leaving the city for good out of fear of further earthquakes and falling masonry. But what does the Lord say here? That the Lord's people will rest secure in God's city, 
in the Lord's temple, where they will be like pillars, stable, strong, and a permanent fixture. Although the people left Philadelphia in fear, in the Lord's eternal city, the believers will never depart. And there is something else about a pillar. It reminds us of the two great pillars in Solomon's temple. One was named Jachin, which means he established, and the other named Boaz, which means in his strength. So it's fitting that these powerless disciples would be like pillars in Solomon's temple because the Lord had established them and they stood firmly in the power of Christ's strength. And their final reward will be that they will receive new names, as will all believers in Christ. Verse 12 says that we will receive the name of our God who is holy and true. And to receive someone's name implies ownership, that you belong to them. And yes, we are the Lord's people, and he owns us. But his ownership is not of a master to a slave. He writes his name on us, but it's not like the branding of a servant with the name of his master. No. Rather, it is the ownership of a God who is our gracious, loving Father, who adopts us into his family, and we receive his name, and we receive his identity. And we also receive the name of the new Jerusalem on us. That will be our permanent home in the new heaven and the new earth that is to come when Christ returns, according to Revelation 21. And when we came to Christ, when we were born again, It was as if we received a new birth certificate. And on that birth certificate, it states our place of birth. And that place is the new Jerusalem. And that, beloved, is our real home now. And then the third name we receive is the name of our Savior. And that name is revealed later on in Revelation 19 as the Lord of lords and King of kings, as we who are in him will also reign with him as Lord of lords and King of kings. And all these rewards that the faithful Philadelphians receive are meant to encourage them to encourage them to hold fast to what they know and what they have in Christ. For if they remain steadfast, they will never, ever lose their crown, and they cannot, they can never lose their salvation as true believers in Christ. These words of encouragement were not just for the church of Philadelphia, but they're for all of God's people. The message is the same. Hold fast to the Lord in times of trial and adversity and persecution. And this passage is especially meaningful for our church 
and for other churches who endeavor to hold fast to Christ and his word in these difficult days. For as Dylan sang, the times they are a-changing. And what he wrote in the 60s has come to pass, but maybe not in the way that he intended it when he sang, the line, it is drawn, the curse, it is cast, the slow one now will later be fast, as the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading And the first one now will later be last, for the times, they are changing. And the order is rapidly fading. What once would have been thought irrational is now being promoted and advocated by our major institutions and corporations as normal, healing, and loving where gender is fluid and a feeling rather than a fact of biology. And we are to lovingly affirm a person's self-perception even when it goes against what is true and what is real. And in the case of abortion, we have politicians advocating for abortion up to the moment of birth for any reason at all with absolutely no restrictions so that good is evil, and evil is good. And now biblical truth is considered dangerous, extreme, and unloving. So watch out if you disagree with the statement that a man can be pregnant. You will be counseled, counseled, for there is zero, zero tolerance for divergent views in this framework of values and beliefs. Beloved, we live in a strange new world. We see examples of it weekly. For example, a prestigious private girls' school in Tennessee was going to admit boys into their school who identify as girls. That was until they heard from the parents and the alum. Then the board of trustees decided to press the pause button on their policy. Brothers and sisters, the winds of change are blowing. And as believers who hold to biblical truth regarding sexuality and gender and human relationships as they were designed to be, we find that these winds are strong winds blowing against us. And how will we respond should we find ourselves in a situation like that of the Philadelphians? What will we do should persecution come our way, whether it's in a small or big way? Will we stand firm like they did? And how did this seemingly small, powerless church withstand the pressure not to cave in and deny Christ and his truth? Well, this passage not only served to encourage them, by giving them praise. It also serves us by giving us promises and a path in times of persecution. And should persecution come, what do we need to remember? 
that this small, powerless church was able to withstand the pressure to conform because they stood firm through the power of Christ. They were able to reach out in that same power to those around them with the gospel, and they could do it because the Lord had opened wide the door of his grace for them to proclaim it. And they were to keep in the forefront of their minds this vision of all that they had possessed, all that they possessed now, and all that awaited for them eternally as an encouragement, as an encouragement to press on, that they had a secure, permanent, eternal home that they had an identity in Christ having been given his name, and that Christ held a key, the key to his kingdom, and that they opened the door for them to all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and that they were forever united to their Savior. So come what may, nothing, nothing, nothing could ever separate them from the love of Christ And should the winds of adversity blow in our direction, will we be like those Philadelphians who held fast to the Lord, the Holy and True One, who opened the way of salvation for them? Let's pray together. O gracious Lord, our minds cannot comprehend what you have done for us in the way that you have lavished your love and grace upon us, for we know that we deserve none of it, that we were clothed in our unrighteous rags of our sin, and yet you have sought, you sought to save us and wash all of our sins away, and that you've given us new life through your resurrection life and that we are now a part of your eternal kingdom where we have a new name, holy and true, where we have your name written upon our hearts and our heads, where we have the name of a new city, our eternal home, the new Jerusalem written upon our hearts. So we thank you for all of these wonderful blessings and the vision of what awaits us when you return to establish and consummate your kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. Until that day, Lord, either when we go to be with you or you come to us, we pray that you would find us faithful and firm in our faith to you, that we would not waver despite the pressures around us, And we give you all praise and thanks for what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.